welcome everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started here this morning. Um, I'm circulating the sign-in sheets again, especially if you are doing this for confirmation. If you would sign in, I do have good news, and that is if you have to miss the next couple of weeks because you might be on uh, spring break vacations, these are being streamed. Um, so you can watch them live if you wish to, or they will also be available on our podcasts with the sermons. So especially if you are planning on being confirmed, we ask that you go ahead and listen to those makeup sessions. So I'm going to pass the sheets around. There are books on the, um, wet, on the coffee wagon, so if everybody would have their catechesis book in hand, and if you forgot to leave it, left at home, try to remember to bring it, uh, because we won't be referring to the questions directly. We'll just be speaking to them, yet I still want you to be looking at the questions, the, formality, the formal questions. So we have Dr. James Gordon with us this morning, which is a treat. He has done quite a bit of work, actually, academically in Christology and the Trinity, but um, he is also a wonderful teacher, and I'm sure he's going to make it very accessible to all of you. And thank you, James. Thanks, Rebecca. <clears throat> uh, well, I've been given the unenviable task of trying to talk about the Trinity and the Incarnation in one Sunday in a way that will be uh, hopefully um, informative, but also will answer questions that all of you have. In fact, those questions are a bit more interesting to me than the things that I want to say, um, because after all, especially for those of you who are being confirmed, the kinds of questions you have about the Trinity and the Incarnation are the things that we ought to be addressing. Um, and in fact, my son Thomas, who recently turned five, had his own question about the Trinity and the Incarnation uh, about a week and a half ago. And I want to frame this whole discussion in terms of his question. Uh, his question was, one evening Sarah had been reading uh, the boys a book, uh, and the, the book was using the biblical language to talk about Jesus as the Son of God. And Thomas uh, is very... Uh, astute in his questioning and, and was paying attention. And he knows that Jesus is God, and he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. And so his question to me was, Dad, is Jesus his own father? This is a very insightful question from my son. Uh, and of course, uh, the answer was, let's talk about that later, because this is like right before <laughs> dinner. Um, and so after I had the, the, the chance to sit down and think about what I was going to tell them, um, we talked it through, and I tried to explain to him the best that I could what we mean when we say that Jesus is God's son and, and what it is for Jesus to pray to the Father. Um, and so that question is going to guide our time today because on the one hand, um, the good thing about Anglican theology with respect to the Trinity and the Incarnation is that we don't really have anything distinctive to say about the Trinity and the Incarnation. Um, we take it that the early church's teaching on these things has sort of established the rules of what's appropriate to say and not to say. And so I want to set out the boundaries in which the kinds of things we say about Jesus and his relationship to the, the Father and the Holy Spirit might make sense. Um, but I also want to preface that by saying a few words about the rationality of Christian doctrine and then try to talk about how we think about the Holy Scriptures in relation to the task of making sense of how Jesus relates to the Father and the Spirit. I mean, if one thing is the case, it's, it's true that in the early centuries of Christian worship, um, Jesus was the center. 
people attributed worship to Jesus Christ. And so there's the question of how is it that in a monotheistic context where you have the Shema that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And yet we also now try to worship Jesus. So I want to talk a little bit about how biblical work relates to the question of Jesus as well and his identity, specifically his divine identity. And of course, my hope is that this isn't going to take too long so that we can open things up for questions that you might have. But if along the way you have questions that uh, are either regarding things that I say specifically or things that follow from something I say or that you're unclear on, feel free to stop me as I'd love to address those as we go on. So I want to start by talking about um, faith and reason. And here I want to ask something like this. Does believing in the Trinity, that God is simultaneously three persons in one nature, and the incarnation where we have one person in two natures, commit us to something that, commit us to believing something that is, that is contradictory? That is, is it the case that these things don't make logical sense? So I want to talk a little bit about that to start off. When we talk about the Trinity and the Incarnation in my classes at Wheaton especially, and we try to make sense of what exactly it is that we're saying when we say that God is simultaneously three in one, one of the common student responses is something like, well, yeah, of course God is three in one. Yes, we know, of course, that $3 can never equal $1, and we know that like a square can never have only three sides, but our logic operates at a sort of different realm than God's logic. And so we have like the way that normal human understanding of the world works, and then we have Christian doctrine that operates at a different level. And I want to suggest that that's not the way that we should think about the Trinity and the Incarnation. Now, there are some people who think that reason, thinking rationally about what Scripture says, actually does a disservice to Christian doctrine. That is, the argument goes like this. If we reason about the Trinity and the Incarnation especially, we're only going to end up at the conclusion that they're incoherent. That is, since the, tri the Trinity says that God is three persons in one nature and the Incarnation says that there's one person who has two natures, if we think about these rationally, we're bound to have to reject that. But I want to suggest that that's not the case. Now, at, at the bottom, the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation are what we might call the mysteries of the faith. They're things that no amount of human reason will ever be able to prove. Now, there are some Christian theologians in history that have tried to go about arguing in some ways rationally to prove these doctrines. So like Augustine famously tries to say that if God is love and love requires an other, then there has to be at least like two persons in God for there to have love exist. And since love between the Father and the Son is bound by a third, the Spirit, the Spirit is the bond of love. And so Augustine tried to rationally argue for the doctrine of the Incarnation or the Trinity in some way. But I want to suggest that there are certain things that are knowable only by divine revelation. We'll call these the mysteries of the faith. Things like the doctrines of creation, the fall, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the atonement, the sending of the Spirit the sacraments, the last things. These are things that human reason could never on its own prove. So you might say, okay, then, then what does human reason do with respect to these things? Well, reason can demonstrate a number of things that we might call the preambles of the faith. Things like that God exists, that God is eternal, that God is immaterial, simple, good, merciful, just. These are things that if you look throughout the history of Christian doctrine, 
Theologians have tried to argue on the basis of reason alone. But notice those things don't get us the mysteries of the faith, the Trinity or the Incarnation especially. So while reason might be able to like get us started on the path of thinking about God, it's never going to be able to prove these mysteries of the faith. And in fact, these mysteries of the faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation especially, require divine revelation for human beings to be able to know them. They're, they're things that have been revealed in scripture that we believe on the basis of faith. So while reason can't prove the articles of faith, what it can do is it can try to show that they're not incoherent. That is, when someone raises an objection to the doctrine of the Trinity or the possibility of one divine person becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ, human reason is able to show that it's not incoherent or incompatible with reason to say these things. It can answer charges against the coherence of doctrine. So to say something is a mystery, a mystery of the faith, is not to say that it's a contradiction. I take it that you probably shouldn't believe anything that is inherently and necessarily contradictory, but I don't think that the Trinity and the Incarnation are. And theologians have gone to great lengths to try to respond to the serious objections to these doctrines um, to show that the fact that there can be a being that is simultaneously three in one is not contrary to reason, even though reason can't prove that. Does that make sense? So reason exists in this context in the service of the faith, both to answer objections that people might have towards the Trinity and the Incarnation. For instance, one philosopher charged that the doctrine of the Trinity is the most brutal and serious error in counting. And theologians are able to respond to that kind of thing, to say that it's not the case that this doctrine is in incoherent. These doctrines, in other words, are not uh, impossibilities. Now, some have tried to suggest that the problem is, is not reason. The problem is the theologians. That is, if we just like stay close to what the Bible says, we won't really have all of these problems arise. That is, scripture gives us a kind of clear picture of Jesus and his relation to God, praying to the Father, sending the Spirit on the disciples in the upper room in John 21, and then later at, at Pentecost. And scripture doesn't try to get into the thorny issues of the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation like the Creed does, for instance. On this reading, the problem is that we've complicated things, and I say we being the theologians, by trying to make sense of what scripture plainly says. However, I want to suggest that there's really good reason to think that these doctrines are located much closer to scripture than we often might intuitively think they are. And in fact, to do this, I want to talk about a book that was written back in, I think it was 2007 or 2009. It was a book by Richard Bauckham called God Crucified. And you might be familiar with the way the Gospels are typically organized in like their dating. Uh, most scholars tend to think that our earliest Gospel is Mark, and then we have uh, Matthew and Luke in the middle with this other document that we don't have, and then the, the latest one is typically taken to be John. And there's a kind of story that says that as Christianity developed in the first century, we have the earliest Gospels saying nothing about Jesus' divinity. So think about Mark. We get lots of language in Mark about Jesus, in fact, being the son of man. So the argument goes that only as we get later in the first century to say the Gospel of John, do we finally get this so-called high Christology, where we get John calling Jesus the Logos, the one who was in the beginning with God, and he's not only the son of man, but the son of God. So the argument for, went for a long time 
that as Christianity developed, the church sort of input their worship practices on the figure of Jesus to develop this figure that was divine. Richard Bauckham's view categorically refutes this common story. Bauckham says that when we think of the language in, say, the Psalms about the one who was to come and sit as the ruler, the one who was in Daniel's language to come and act as God himself, the language that we get in the Gospels to describe that phenomenon is not the language of the Son of God that we have in John, but in fact the earliest language of the Son of Man. So the language that we see in Mark to describe Jesus is, as Bauckham argues, the highest kind of Christology one could have. So contrary to the argument that says the church sort of glued divinity onto Jesus, what we have is the earliest gospel accounts looking at the work of Jesus and identifying it as the work of God himself. So the problem then becomes, how do we make sense of this worship of Jesus in the context of the monotheistic faith? That is, if we have monotheism that explicitly says there's one God and only one God, and yet we also have early Christians worshiping Jesus, how do we make sense of that worship? That's what the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation are put to service for, to try to understand how the practice that has already been assumed in the early church now can be understood in the context of what we say about the person of Jesus. So I'm going to talk about some heresies a little bit later that are, kind of, are things that we might imagine like plot, plots on a map. All the kinds of statements that people would make about Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and their relation. And the church in the first six centuries is trying to set up a series of boundaries. Boundaries that aren't necessarily always a perfect square, but to rule things out as inappropriate to say about Jesus and his relation to the Father. Those are the things that we end up calling heresies because they're inappropriate to say once we try to read scripture and make sense of Jesus' relationship to God. And so, if it's the case that the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation flow out of our commitment to Christ worship, I want to talk a little bit about how we can make sense of Scripture as giving us these concepts. So it's not like, well, Scripture talks about worshiping Jesus, and then we're going to like step back a few steps and then construct these doctrines to make sense of what we say. Rather, the doctrines are contained implicitly in the language of Scripture. Okay, I'm going to stop quickly for questions so far and then see if there are any, and if they're not, I will proceed. Anything to clarify so far? Okay, so contrary to what some might suggest, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a foreign imposition of philosophical concepts onto the text of Scripture. After all, we all know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Um, but rather, the way that we describe the doctrine of the Trinity is what I'll call a theological judgment that's based on our interpretation of Scripture's own claims about Jesus' relationship to God, to God the Father. In fact, we get Paul, for instance, is saying that Jesus did not consider his equality with God as, as something to be taken advantage of, but humbled himself to become incarnate in the person of Christ. And there's an essay that was written, uh, I think back in the early 2000s, by a guy named David Yego. And he unpacks this distinction further and tries to say, that there's, um, the Trinity is what we might call a non-identical equivalent concept 
to describe what is being said in Scripture about Jesus' relationship to the Father. And so as we move from the language of Scripture, as we interpret it and try to make sense of it, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that emerges out of our interpretation of Scripture. And as we look at the early church, what we see is the developing of what we can call a, a Trinitarian grammar for a way to talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father that makes sense of the kinds of things that we see in Scripture. And uh, Deacon Rob talked last week a little bit about Athanasius. I was going to point out some texts in Athanasius that help us understand the Trinity and the Incarnation, um, but since he took that, I will pass over Athanasius. Just to say that there's a standard uh, telling of the story that basically sees like the Orthodox people in the early church, and then you have like the Arians, and the Arians were the ones that like Athanasius and others were fighting really hard against. Um, but a lot of the recent scholarship on the doctrine of the Trinity suggests that the categories are a lot more complex than that inherited story uh, might actually be. And so as a, instead, what we get is the theologians who end up going into Nicaea give us some patterns of language for talking about Jesus and his relation to God that I think can help us make sense of the doctrine of the Trinity a little bit better. Um, the first of these distinctions that I want to discuss is what's called the person and nature distinction. The first strategy here is that when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about three distinct persons, all of whom exist in one nature. Whatever we say, in other words, is true of the divine nature, that is of like who God is in the being of God, must be equally said of all the other three divine persons, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So since the divine nature is one, and yet there are three persons, anything we say of the divine nature must be true of the three persons. And we must not think of this nature kind of like um, the way, say, uh, Father James, Deacon Mary, and I all share a common human nature. Like, we're, we're, we're three distinct, fully separate individuals who we might, like, agree on a common plan to, like, I don't know, do like a a three-person, six-legged race or something like that. That's not what's going on when we talk about the one nature of the triune God. It's, it's not three distinct persons who come together for mutual cooperation, but rather one nature that it exists in three distinct persons. Not in the sense of the concept of persons as like in existing possibly apart from one another. So this first distinction is the person-nature distinction, that when we talk about the Trinity, according to the early church, we're not talking about three distinct individuals, but rather individuals who all share a common, one singular nature, and yet exist as, as three. The second way that the early church talked about the Trinity is through the language of the works that the Trinity undertook. Uh, this is often referred to as um, the idea of Trinitarian appropriations. And what this means is, is that since God is one, whenever we see one of the divine persons doing something, all of the other three divine persons, the other two divine persons are present and acting inseparably in that action. The early church put it like this, the external works of God are undivided. Whatever God does, all three persons of the triune God are doing together. 
So here's an example. When we talk about the creation of the world, we say something like this. All things, of course, come from God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're able to, we could say, pick out certain elements of the action that are appropriate to uh, attribute to one of the Trinitarian persons, even while all three Trinitarian persons are present doing the work. This makes a really big difference for the way that we understand, say, like, the cross. Um, we don't have, like, Jesus sort of going to do his own thing, estranged from the Father and the Holy Spirit, but rather we see a fully divine triune act in every element of the cross, which makes things like, say, the cry of dereliction, where Jesus appeals to his feeling of God-forsakenness, as challenging to understand. But what we don't see is like this one person of the Trinity now like separated from the others, but rather a complete act of God to redeem humanity. Yeah. What about the sense of time away? Yeah, so I'll point, um, there's a really, I take it, good treatment of this book, uh, of, this, of this topic by a theologian named Thomas McCall. It's called Forsaken. And he tries to make sense of what it would be for Jesus to quote the psalm that, that he does uh, in that context. And um, in his understanding, the early church was fairly undivided on, uh, on the point that there was not like any sort of ontological rupture in the Trinity um, at like the level of the Trinity's existence, but rather this complete feeling of abandonment by the fact that we have the second person of the Trinity, the Son, um, possessing a fully human nature. And yet, like, the context of that psalm is not mere, like, defeat and abandonment, but, like, the entire psalm, which Jesus undoubtedly knew, is a psalm of victory. And so, like, the context of the psalm means that while it's the case that we have this abandonment to these people, at this time, Jesus says not my will to abandon this act, but yours be done. We also have Jesus knowing that this is part of the divine mission to accomplish salvation. Um, and so there's like, at, the, at the, the level of human suffering, this real feeling of abandonment, and yet abandonment as such being impossible, given the kind of being that Jesus is, as, as being completely united in nature with God. I would, it would seem odd, for instance, if like, at the peak moment of redemption, that the Trinitarian God that's undertaking our salvation ceases to exist as triune for the sake of our salvation, right? And so um, that's just a cursory attempt to deal with some of the issues there. But does that answer sufficiently? Yeah, it's a very good point. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah. Uh, feel free to put this off until you're going to deal with it if you are. Sure. I didn't mean that. No, what I meant to say is that when we see scripture seeming to attribute certain things to one of the persons, that that's appropriate. But yet in any of the given acts, we can make sense of the other persons acting in that particular act. 
This is why, for instance, like the church says it's not appropriate to say that the Father suffered on the cross. Because that, that's the kind of thing we say about Jesus, because it happened in his person. But yeah, that's not to say that the Father wasn't active in the act of what was happening on the cross and the Holy Spirit as well. So I don't mean to say that we can just like insert any person we want for anything scripture says about any one particular of them. Jesus wasn't sent at Pentecost. It was the Holy Spirit. But yet, it was the Holy Spirit that was sent by the person of Christ in the upper room, for instance, before Pentecost, and then the apostles continuing that on. Yeah. And then my supplementary question is, do you have like guidance in terms of whether we ought to or ought not to try to go to graphic like summaries of <laughs> this thing? Because that's the thing that comes up a lot with younger people I'm related to. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the best graphic that I've seen is the one that has three distinct, it's, it's trying to be a summary of the Athanasian Creed, um, which basically says you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and like the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit or the Father, and yet they all three are God, and there's not three gods but one God, so like we're trying to avoid tritheism attributing full divinity and yet not confusing who they are because they're distinct. Um, that's like the best thing I can recommend because it, its positive contribution is in that it's what it's not saying. Um, but as far as the analogies go, I had a student suggest that maybe waves would be a good, not like water waves, but like a, a, an electrical wave and it's, it's, not, um, it's not a particle nor is it not something else. But I don't know anything about physics, and so I can't make comments about that. And so I said, well, I, I would avoid it, but you might find it useful. <laughs> Deacon Mary, and then we'll go to Karen. Um, what do you think of C.S. Lewis's analogy of um, the way the understanding now is that there's this kind of three-dimensional that was going to be used? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, perhaps. Yeah, right. I just wonder how, if, if like, we find a fourth dimension or something like that, that it's, it, it complicates things. So that's why I worry about these kinds of analogies, that we might discover something that's deeply mistaken about them. Karis? Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, so it's appropriate, of course, to pray to God as Father. Jesus does that. It would be wrong to think that God is like definitionally a he, for instance, and that the spirit is not. Some have tried to say that like the spirit is kind of like the feminine thing of God, and I think that's really unhelpful. Um, I think the church's pattern of person is important because what they're wanting to say, as I'm going to talk a little bit about later, we want to avoid tritheism on the one hand that makes it something like three distinct persons who just happen to like, for the sake of redemption of humanity, cooperate together. But there was another heresy that was called modalism 
where they wanted to avoid saying that like God is one but appears in three distinct ways throughout the course of history so that we have like the Father creating, then that same being takes the form of the Son, and then that same being takes the form of the Spirit, where there's not simultaneously three persons acting throughout all of history, but, but rather one divine being that is three distinct persons. And so like the language of being or essence or nature um, gets unpacked in a lot of different philosophical ways to try to make sense of what we're saying when we say that God is one. And there are some who think that uh, this, this, the language you use matters a, a bit more. And I think it does depending on what we mean by nature, essence, etc. Does that answer your question at all? Okay. Anything else so far? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, when we say that God is triune, we can fully affirm the Shema. Um, it would be it wouldn't be appropriate to say the Lord our God is one, um, and yet we understand that the Lord our God is one and yet simultaneously three, which is what I take to be like the distinctive part of Christian worship as opposed to those who uh, in Judaism who would reject Jesus as Messiah because they don't take him to be fully and equally God. Which brings us to another heresy that we might discuss from the Arians. And the challenge with this heresy is that we have um, Arius and others wanting to protect the Shema. The worry was that if we fully attribute worship to Jesus as a being that's co-equal with the God of Israel, we've compromised like the basic teaching about who God is. And so Arius, in some ways, was wanting to be traditional in the sense of affirming this fully robust Jewish monotheism to such an extent that Christ had to be a lesser deity that was of a different essence, not the same. But what we end up getting in the Council of Nicaea and in the Niceno-Constantinopolitan uh, Creed is that we have uh, Jesus who's of one being or essence with God, which is contrary to what Arius wanted to say, to attribute Jesus as a lower form of divinity. The Creed says, no, whatever it is that we say about God the Father's being worthy of worship, we have to say the same thing about the Son. And so, too, the Holy Spirit. So here's, the, here's the, another way they reconciled it. Here's the last piece of Trinitarian grammar. So I talked about the person-nature distinction. I talked about appropriations, where we have one being acting undivided, and yet it being appropriate to attribute certain actions as terminating on one or, or other of the Trinitarian persons. The third strategy is the doctrine of divine simplicity. And what this means is, is that when we pick out different... Um, different characteristics of God, say divine love, justice, and mercy, we're not picking these out as parts of God. Um, rather, for instance, to say that God is 
just is just what it is to say that God is loving. It's just what it is to say that God is merciful. That is, um, and there are different ways to unpack what this means. Uh, one way is to understand, for instance, that like how, there's a question of how do we deal with like divine wrath in relation to divine love? And one way to understand this is that divine wrath is what it looks like for individuals who are rejecting divine love. Um, and so the different attributes of God are not like different parts or aspects of the divine being, but one component of the divine essence. Other questions so far? Yeah, Rich. says this. I've not heard it before. Um, what I've read based on Jewish understandings of monotheism is it sounds like that would have been foreign to their understanding. But if you have someone arguing to the contrary, I might be mistaken. Um, but the second is the, the best treatment of the Shema's language or the, the, the words that Father James preached this morning when, G, when we, we hear that God revealing himself as I am who I am. Um, there's a Catholic theologian named Matthew Levering who has this book about, uh, I forget, it's called, I forget the name of it, it's black. Um, and, and he argues that the language of God saying I am who I am is something that's really equivalent to the way that divine simplicity gets unpacked in the medieval theologians, um, that it's a reference to the unity of essence that exists among these three distinct persons. Um, so I don't know if there's baked into that Jewish concept a plurality. Uh, I'd be happy to concede if there was if there were Jewish scholars who saw this, um, but I don't I don't think it would have been in their minds. Other questions so far? Yeah. What about uh, as Christians, we want to hear the Trinity in Genesis 1, let us create. Yeah. This is Jewish thought. Is there room in Jewish thought for the Trinity there, or do we need to understand that separately that they're one Jewish? That's a good question. I, I would, I would, uh, I would probably concede this point to whatever my colleagues studying Genesis would want to say about that. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not opposed to Christian exegesis that finds Trinity, especially in the Old Testament, but I would be hesitant to see it as like authorial intent in there. So interpreting Christian scriptures is a practice that need not be bound to what, what X author meant at X time. And I think there's lots of precedent for that practice. So I would probably chalk it up to um, non-authorial intent, but if there is authorial intent, great. Um, <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, yeah, how, how do we parse out language of when we're praying, like do we just pray to God, the triune God, or is it appropriate to pray to Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Um, I think that like we have precedence in say like the Lord's Prayer for praying at, to God as Father. Um, I think we see prayers that address Christ in say like the, the kind of early Pauline texts that have these like moments of prayer where Paul is uh, asserting the lordship of Christ and saying things about Christ. So I find that appropriate. Um, I, I, I don't think it would therefore be inappropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit either, insofar as we understand the Holy Spirit to be the means by which the Father's plan is carried out in the person of the Son. Um, and so I would just say that our Trinitarian prayers ought to be bounded by the kind of action that we see as appropriate, defined by scripture, with respect to what these distinct persons do. That'd be my guidance. Um, I don't know if it's right or not. <laughs> Other questions so far? So let's see, we talked about Arianism, we talked about modalism. These are the Nicene boundaries of what's supposed to be outside of the realm of what's acceptable to say. We talked about tritheism. There are two others uh, that were in the, the third through sixth century um, important things that were outlawed. One of them is the heresy known as adoptionism, which basically tried to say that like when we see, for instance, the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove at his baptism, that what we have is God picking out a mere human person to be included in the divine mission. That is, it's, it's rejecting the idea that the eternally begotten Son of the Father existed from all eternity, and rather saying that Jesus the man was given a sort of special grace to be included in the divine plan. The church wanted to reject that because from the beginning we have three persons who are carrying out the work of redemption. So too was like the other error. If this was Jesus's um, fully human and then ends up being like given a special divine grace to be God. The other heresy that was ruled out is the heresy of docetism, which tried to say that Jesus only appeared to be human. So like he's kind of floating above his physical body as God while yet walking on earth. There's like no real um, embodied incarnate work going on here. It wasn't really Jesus the human, but God walking on earth with a, an appearance of humanity. And this was ruled as out of bounds as well, because since Jesus was fully God, um, we want to also be able to say that yet in the incarnation, God becomes fully human in the person of Jesus Christ. Which leads me finally to the incarnation. So whereas the doctrine of the Trinity says that there are three persons who have one nature, the incarnation specifies that there's one person with two natures natures that are fully divine and fully human. So the incarnation says that the person of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-existing son of God, pre-existing meaning before the foundation of the world, the one through whom all things were made. This pre-existent son of God assumes a complete human nature in addition to the divine nature that he already possesses by nature. 
And so the incarnation is the addition of a human nature to the son, while yet the son remaining who he was, always and already from the beginning. He becomes fully human in the act of incarnation, um, being born of the Virgin Mary. And there were two predominant heresies that the church wanted to outlaw with respect to what to say about Jesus at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The first of these heresies is the heresy of Nestorianism, which basically wanted to say that when you have a nature, you have a person. Persons subsist with their natures. And as a result, since we have two natures in Jesus, we have not only the divine son acting as with the, the divine nature, but this other nature also acted as well. And so what we get, according to the Nestorian heresy, were two different persons in one being of Jesus walking around with two persons and not one. And the church wanted to say that that is not the right way to think about Jesus. We have one person, the eternal son, acting through a, a, a physical human body with a fully human nature like ours in all respects, save sin, and yet fully divine at the same time. Then on the other end, the heresy being rejected that was known as Eutychianism was basically the opposite error. It was basically saying that Jesus doesn't have two distinct natures, divine and human, but rather the nature that Christ possesses is this unique one. It's kind of a blend of the human and divine nature. It's a new third kind of thing. And the problem there was if Christ's human nature is unlike ours in some respect, like this new kind of divine human nature, then it's hard to see how he as human could be the representative to God for all humans in the act of redemption. So all of the heresies, both Trinitarian and Christological, that the church was attempting to rule out of the bounds of what was appropriate to say about Christ, the Father, and the Spirit, were on the basis of them compromising the kind of work that we see Christ undertaking in the witness in Christian scripture. So the reason that heresies are bad is not because they're heresies. The reason heresies are bad is because they undermine the kinds of things we say about Christian redemption in the person of Christ, undertaken by the Father through the power of the Spirit. So that's very brief, but Mary? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I've, read a, I've read a lot of stuff on this, and I'm not sure what I think. Um, it's, it's a real challenge because on the one hand, I fully want to say that uh, the eternal Logos was and always will be omniscient. And yet, um, to make sense of some of Jesus' actions, we need to make sense of him not knowing what was going to happen. And the way the church has tried to deal with this is through a view that's called diothelitism, that tries to make sense of Jesus as having not only a divine mind, but also a human mind. But even that doesn't really solve it because presumably like the divine mind is going, the, the Lutherans especially wanted to see the divine mind as like just overcoming the human. So even if I don't know all truths by virtue of my human nature, and I do know all truths by virtue of my divine nature, then I know all, the, all truths by virtue of my divine nature and would know all those things. And so, there are some that have suggested that Christ 
that part of the, we, we talk about kenosis, the, the self-emptying. Um, I don't take that kenosis is like a giving up of attributes, but perhaps like a willed non-use of those attributes for the purpose of redemption. So like perhaps it's the case that at any point Jesus could have fully known whatever his human mind lacked, yet for the sake of redemption as being completely com committed by virtue of divine simplicity to the redemption that the triune being is undertaking, that he doesn't access those. And I don't see any reason to think that that's... In that sounds like a great explanation, but I don't know what you meant, and that's probably about the best shot I've ever heard. So. It seems to me that that's the best view, but I don't know. To, to look at any particular instance in a text that says something about Jesus's psychology with respect to his relations with other people and immediately making a doctrinal generalization with respect to that. Uh, but it creates things that we would have to make sense of to fully specify what, it, what the psychology of Christ was. Yeah. As I understand it, Jesus is like a, a human, or is fully human and fully God yeah. currently. Right. Um, even after being crucified and resurrected. And I, I think I understand what you said, that that was not the case before the incarnation. That's right. Jesus is not a human person. Jesus is a divine person that assumed a human nature. Some people don't like that claim, uh, the Lutherans especially. I understand why. Um, but we would say that the human nature is contingent. Like, Jesus presumably like, could have left his human nature behind and not ascended with it. Um, but... The fact that he became incarnate for us in our salvation to undertake uh, the redemptive acts for us, and yet remains incarnate as the intercessor between God and humanity, um, doesn't necessarily entail a change to who God is in his essence, merely that we have this addition to who the Son already was. Does that answer the, the worry, or is there another worry under the surface? I don't know because I don't know what all the downstream ramifications are of the questions that I ask. <laughs> uh, so I, I think sometimes you're using this new to me, and that's why I'm okay. So yeah, so you're encouraging me to not say that Jesus is a human. Now. No, 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 no. He's fully human now. Okay. But a human person, if you said that Jesus was a human person, Nestorianism would be true. Because you would have the divine person that existed prior to the incarnation, assuming a human nature, and you also have that nature giving us a human person, and there would be two persons, the eternal son and Jesus, which is precisely what 
Nestorius would say. So what we need to be able to say is that Jesus is the person that is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, who now has a fully human nature just like ours, of which he is the subject. So like whatever is happening in Jesus of Nazareth, it's because the person of the eternal word is the one living this fully human life. And so the church tries to say that like they use this, um, it's called the communication of attributes to talk about how Distinct attributes of the divine nature and the human nature can be yet predicated of the one divine person. So whenever the church, the early church says that Jesus suffered, the language is always qualified by Jesus suffered according to his human nature. Because God, if God is impassable and immutable, couldn't be the one suffering. And yet Jesus did suffer, and the language of talking about Jesus suffering is appropriate because we see it in scripture, and it's part of the redemptive act that he undertook for us in our salvation. Uh, yeah, Rich. I have a really simple question. Okay. Uh, what about the doctrine of the ascension? How does that tie into the two that you just mentioned? Um, so I, I don't take it that the ascension is primarily answering like a scientific question, though there might like about how did he go up in the clouds? Or, or it, so it's merely that now Jesus, the eternal son of God, exists as fully human to be our mediator and high priest. So he still has a body. That's right. And, and whether it's... I think that we will, we will rise bodily, but I don't think we will ascend anywhere bodily. I think that the new heavens and new earth will be made for risen believers here on the remade earth. So I don't see a, um, I don't, I don't see that the ascension pattern will also hold true for human beings, given the kinds of things that. For instance, like N.T. Wright talk about in um, whatever the new heavens and the new earth would look like. Yeah, John. Here we've got a 
So at least in the, the so-called ecumenical creeds, the first seven of them, you have this is like before we have the Eastern Church split off, before the Protestant Reformation. So like on these things, we have distinct agreement among all the branches of the church um, and, and all tied back to like not only scripture, but we see this in the earliest practices like in the Didache that, that unpack what early Christian worship looks like. And given what early Christian worship looked like, you have these questions arising. And I think that to respect tradition means to say that like these particular questions have been settled in this uh, normative authority for us. It's not, so if, if, if scripture is the norming norm, as like inheritors of Reformation, non-Catholic Christianity, we affirm, we still have a normative authority on the basis of the creeds that makes them um, that makes them important for the way that we understand and read scripture and the way that we, we understand our practice. So, so for those particular questions, I think that they have been settled by church authority and, and like aren't up for grabs. Um, but I also am, am fully Protestant and think that the question of the norms of authority for non-heretical doctrines are also the things that the spirit is undertaking in our midst, um, which is why I, I think that there are questions that weren't settled in the early church that we still are debating and trying to make sense of today. I wouldn't think that if I were a Catholic, because they would be settled by whatever the magisterial reading of scripture determines. Well, so, so that, that authority continues in, in Catholic teaching for the recognition of apostolic succession. So given that we have like normative rules throughout the bishops of the church telling us what to believe, that doesn't stop just because the Eastern Church and those heretic Protestant reformers split off from the Catholic Church, but rather continues through the embodiment of the heirs of Peter's, uh, of Peter's line in the Pope. Any last questions? It's okay. Oh, thanks. I hope. Yeah. If you have other questions uh, or want further resources, let me know. I'm happy to pass those along. Sorry we didn't cover everything, but uh, I'm happy to cover what we did. <laughs> Thanks.